Um, for those of you who haven't been here much, it's not necessarily customary for one person to do uh, worship and preach, but Nate gave me an entire uh, 24 hours notice about preaching, so, and I'm gigging him about that a little bit. Um, before we uh, before we start into that, a couple of things. I'm sure that many of you have seen in the church email, and by the way, if you're not on the church email, um, I know this lady right here, Jess, would be delighted to get you on. Uh, our brother, Joe Sanchez, passed away Wednesday. Joe was sitting right there last Sunday. Uh... I talked to him for several minutes after the service, and he wanted me to know he wasn't going to be here today because I think because he was had to go get pick up his sister or something like that. He was he was letting us know that he he'd be absent today. And Jess uh, and Jess and I talked about this briefly. Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, the main thrust of Nate's uh, word his sermon was, "This life is temporal." And uh, we need to be ready. <laughs> we need to be ready to go. And uh, you may recall, even last week during worship, we sang a couple of songs, and Jess was just commenting like, wow, you know, Joe was right here with us, uh, worshiping with us, singing those songs, those songs about going home to be with the Lord. Amen. And uh, took communion with us. And anyway, we're going to miss him. Um, there will be a service for Joe here at 1 p.m. on Friday. This coming Friday, July 8th, 1 p.m. And uh, it'll be followed by a, a meal. They, uh, they think 100 to 115, is that what she said? And that would not be counting uh, the people from the church here that can make it. And I'm not going to... Uh, like, I'm not going to put the screws on anybody too hard, but I'll just say, I think this is an excellent opportunity for the church to minister and extend Christ's love to the family. Amen. So, um, Jess, somewhere between Jess, Peg, Marsha, Kim, maybe I don't know who all's involved. Uh, they're putting together a, a plan for the meal. Uh, the church is going to provide the meal. And, uh, and they'll, we'll get set up for it and everything. And the service will be in here. And Kyle, we do need to talk about uh, projecting a slideshow. Sorry we're doing all this administrative stuff right now, but hey, we're all here. We're all here and we're all family, right? <laughs> so, so that's the best way to not forget it, I guess. Um, wow. I am going to miss that brother. Is, uh it's such a sweet spirit. Every time I talked to him, he was very affirming in everything that he said. Just a uh, very gentle, very humble guy. Uh, and I found out he loved to fish. And so I'm going to have this great regret I didn't get to fish with Joe. Maybe on the other side, huh? <laughs> Amen. Okay. Before we dive into the word, I do have a, 
I do have a science topic. I won't say fact. Maybe it's fact. We've had a, and I talked to, I talked to some of the guys at uh, the midweek uh, Bible study about this. We've had a hummingbird that came and built a nest right over the courtesy light at the entrance to our shop. And so, you know, someone put a sign on the window that said, shh, a hummingbird, you know. And she was very patient. She would let us come in and out the door. Sometimes she would fly away from her nest for a minute or so, and then she would come back. But so fascinating to watch. You know, their, their eggs are like the size of a gourmet jelly bean, and the birds are so tiny and perfect. Um, and honestly, I don't, know if her, I, I don't know how it all came out. She was there long enough to have hatched chicks. Uh, but I, I did some reading about hummingbirds and then another bird, and I think, Monty, I was sharing this with you on Wednesday, this uh, particularly fascinated by swifts. There are several kinds of swifts. We have a couple kinds in Colorado. Uh, and they're... And they're fairly common in the world, but the more that I learn about them, the more I am absolutely amazed. These things, um, and I believe hummingbirds are the same way, I didn't look that up, they don't learn to fly, they just fly. They just stay in the nest until they're ready, and then they go. Now I was out yesterday morning with a friend who's learning to fly. And uh, he's at the 50-some hour mark or something, and, you know, it's starting to come together. But the thought that, that, the thought that this bird, without any practice, because of how it was designed and made, could fledge in the nest and just take off and fly. And not just fly. They're the fastest birds in the world in level flight. Everyone says peregrine falcon, but that's in a dive. If you talk about just flat out speed, it's a swift. And there's a lot we don't know about them. They're learning more all the time. But when they launch the first time, they probably don't land until three or four years later when they're ready to nest. They stay airborne all the time. Now you guys know I'm fascinated with things that fly. <laughs> so this is particularly fascinating to me. But can you imagine that? This bird doesn't have to learn anything. It takes off and it stays airborne pretty much its entire life. It feeds in the air. It sleeps in the air. Like it has the ability to like sleep one half of its brain while the other half stays awake enough to keep flying. They mate in the air, go figure, I don't, I don't know. They, they nest by coming up to like a cliff and, and landing and just hooking on like that. And it's really the only time they ever touch the earth is when they, when they build a nest and have babies and start the thing over. We serve an awesome God and his creation is... Uh, Perhaps it's not as fascinating to you guys as it is to me, but I just marvel at that, that this thing is so perfectly formed. You know, it's hard to make something fly. It's not easy to make something fly. And, uh, and to make 
to create a bird that can fly like that and basically live in the air, just stay in the air. I'd like to be able to stay in the air. That'd be cool. I want you to turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel, um, the 15th chapter. One more thought as I wrap up the bird. You know, anytime you go read about this, and I'm sure you guys see this, anytime we read about a marvel of nature, uh, the, closing, the closing words are, uh, you know, these birds are so fantastic because look what they've been able to do. Uh, the, the, I don't know if I'm going to make sense here. Marvel at how they've adapted. Marvel at, marvel at what they've accomplished. Marvel at what they've made themselves into. And, uh, of course, that's incorrect. They didn't have anything to do with it. God made them. And it reminded me of the 100th Psalm. It's he that hath made us, not we ourselves. That seems like an odd thing because we don't sit and think we made ourselves very much. But that thought is permeated in society around us that, no, we're, we, we kind of did. We kind of we slid out of the primordial soup and by dint of, you know, constant uh, effort, we've gotten to this wonderful place we are now, Rick. Can you imagine it? I mean, <laughs> that's a little tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't make ourselves and the swift didn't make itself God made them um, I have this, this rare opportunity maybe to actually uh, do a sort of a two part series <laughs> so we're going to do the first part today and, it's, uh, the, and the subject is going to be um, obedience and I want to go through uh, a story from the Old Testament. You may say, uh, well, what's the Old Testament got to do with it? Oh, an awful lot, actually. Let's read this story and, and look at it. Um, we're going we're gonna to dive into 1 Samuel 15. And uh, my wife has heard me speak on this chapter at least a couple of times. I want to set the stage for what, for this story. Let's read the first verse, First Samuel chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. If we back up just a little bit, Saul hasn't been king for very long. And I think we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday morning. Uh, having a king wasn't even God's plan in the first place. Right? And Samuel felt very rejected when, the, when Israel said, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. We want a king. And Samuel felt like he had been rejected. And the Lord told Samuel, it's not you they rejected, Samuel. It's not you they rejected. It's me they're rejecting. But God in his mercy allowed them to have a king. And the first king, Saul, the one we're reading about now, uh, was picked, he was chosen, and he must have been something to behold. I mean, the, the word says a couple of chapters back, he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the nation, and uh, he was the most handsome man there. 
like this guy looked like a king, no doubt about it. Um, but he didn't get off to a very good start. And this chapter, this story that we're going to read today was really like the turning point in Saul's uh, history as the first king of Israel. Not, not a good turning point, as we're going to find out. Verse 1 again. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel, and now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up out of Egypt. Let's stop and talk about that for a second. The Amalekites uh, were the, really the first people that an open battle was fought with by the Israelites after they left Egypt. And this is the battle, if you'll remember, where uh, they held Moses' hands up, and as long as his hands were up, Israel was prevailing. And he got tired, his hands went down, well, then the Amalekites started to prevail. That's, that's these same people. And, and the Lord had, had said at that time, he said, I'm going to blot them out. Now, my sermon today isn't going to dig too far into the blotting of things out um, or, or all the reasons behind that with the Amalekites. Um, but it had been foretold, it had been spoken that Israel was to take these people out. They, they sort of uh, followed the stragglers as the Israelites were in the desert, and they picked off the, the slower ones, and uh, God didn't have a very uh, didn't have much patience with that. And he said, they're going to be utterly destroyed. That's the word coming to, to uh, Saul from Samuel. Now, I'm on verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him. Put to death man, woman, Child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Now I'm not going to stop and dive into whether or not we think that was fair. Um, this is what the Lord told him to do. Saul summoned the people and numbered them until I am. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites. The Kenites were mixed in with them. He said, Go down from among them, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul 
And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, Wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil, and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, some versions say witchcraft, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. We may go on from there. That was a pretty, uh, that was a pretty long read. I want to I want to back up and talk about a few things. First of all, maybe, why, why is it even on my heart to come to 1 Samuel 15? Well, uh, Peg knows this very well. Uh, this, this passage of scripture was laid open to us very early in our marriage, and right about the time we were becoming parents. And uh, I can't think of a I can't think of a story or a passage that gripped me more than this one because it, because it was just like a shot across my bow. Whoa. Rebellion is witchcraft? I mean, that's, that's the true literal. This says, uh, is as. From, from what I read from the commentaries, the more literal, no, it is. Rebellion is witchcraft. And there's a, there's a, there's something here that I think we absolutely need to understand, which is God puts an awful lot of value on obedience. And God puts a lot of uh, judgment, potentially, onto disobedience. All right? Now, if you sit back and you think about what happened here, Samuel came and he said, here's what the Lord told me to tell you. This is what you're supposed to go do. 
by most people's evaluation, Saul would have at least gotten a B plus, if not an A minus. Because he did most of it. He did most of it. But what did God say? He's not doing what I told him to do. Stop and think about that for a minute because I think this is a very important point. Partial obedience is disobedience. Okay? That's for somebody here. Partial obedience is disobedience. If we approach something and we say, well, I'm going to do most of it. That's not what God's looking for. God is looking for full obedience, like all-in obedience. Now, why is this important for us to understand? Because, personally, I think that it's very widespread in Christendom that obedience is sort of like a unattainable La La Land idea, and uh, oh, it's sort of a, it's sort of archaic, and you know, um, if we get around to it, maybe if we get around to it on certain occasions, I'm just going to submit to you that's not true, and that's and that. And I'm not saying that purely on the basis of 1 Samuel 15. We'll go to the New Testament in a few minutes and see what, what kind of weight is put onto obedience. Now, guys, please understand. I'm not a pair espousing sinless perfection, but I'm saying we know when we're obedient and we know when we're disobedient. Amen? We know it. We absolutely know it. And if we have formed a habit of accepting or or living with or adopting disobedience we're breaking the father's heart we are breaking the father's heart and beyond that i think we're severely <laughs> limiting what he is going to entrust to us he's getting he's taking the kingship of israel away from saul over what looks like some sheep oxen and one guy they left alive. All right? Everyone here understands, I think, these, these stories in the Old Testament, they're always a type and a shadow of where, of where we are today. They, they, they show us, they instruct us, and usually there's something in them that's like exactly analogous to to our life, our walk with the Lord. I would submit to you that there are a lot of believers who have kept the king alive. What did it say here? What were they not willing to um, destroy? The stuff that seemed good. The stuff that seemed good. And then, of course, Saul comes up with the excuse, well, really, we were going to sacrifice it. Uh, that's why we hung on to it. And were they going to sacrifice it? Well, I don't know. I'd rather think not. But I think for us as individual believers, we always have to be looking and say, hey, have we kept something alive that we were supposed to put
put to death that we were supposed to utterly destroy, utterly get rid of? I've seen it. I've seen it hamstring people in their walk. They have an idea that they can keep this part of the old thing. They can keep this part of the kingship of their life and they can keep it intact and somehow even they probably deluded themselves into thinking that that it's going to be pleasing to God if they do that. It's come forth from this pulpit a lot and, and lately a lot. When, when we become disciples of Christ, we're bondservants. Our right to ourself, we don't have a right to ourself. That's what we are surrendering. We're surrendering our right to ourself. You know, Saul is in such contrast to, uh, to the next king, David. And uh, if, we, if we look right ahead to, right after where I left off, I want to point out something. We stopped at verse 24. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it, and Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul is more concerned about his image with the people. You see that? He's more concerned about preserving his image with the people. What do I want to contrast that with? David. David in uh, 2 Samuel 12, when David was confronted by a different prophet, Nathan, and Nathan came to him and said, it's you, man. He was calling him out because David had arranged the death of Uriah and he had taken his wife, Bathsheba. David didn't spend any time, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not making light of David's sin. He didn't spend any time on, hey, wait a minute, Nathan, could you, could you make it look good for the people's sake? He didn't spend any time on that. What did he do? Sackcloth and ashes. I mean, he went into sackcloth and ashes. He, he actually was repentant. The big difference, I believe, between Saul and David was their heart, their heart condition in both cases. Saul was concerned about his image. David was concerned about the nearness of the Spirit of God. He wanted, he always wanted God. He always wanted the Spirit alive and real and close. He yearned after it. Saul even reverts here in this passage to saying, your God. He says, your God. Not, he doesn't even say, my God. He says, your God. Uh, to Samuel. 
And I think, I think even that gives us a glimpse into his heart. Partial obedience is not obedience. It, it seems to me that many times if someone understood the import of this story, this particular example where God said, I want you to go do this thing. The person that was instructed to do it failed to do it and was held into account for being disobedient. It seems like people would, by extension, grasp how that should, like how they should apply that. But often I think we don't. And it's puzzled me. It's puzzled me quite a bit. Like, this is uh, especially true maybe in uh, parents' rearing of children. Because that's what spoke to me out of this many, many years ago was, whoa, this is really how God views disobedience. This is really how God views rebellion. It's a lot more serious thing than we're, than we're often likely to give it credit for being. And it's a very serious thing. And this, believe me, this isn't aimed at anybody here uh, with regard to uh, child rearing. In fact, one of the things that uh, impressed Peg and I the most when we were, were first in this church was, wow, there's a lot of great kids here. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of well-behaved kids. There's a lot of kids that seem like they're getting good, uh, they're getting good uh, instruction and training from their parents, which is, which, which is glorifies God actually, and it and it should never be the other way. Our obedience is going to be a reflection of our heart attitude, and I think God entrusts, He entrusts us with things in accordance with our level of obedience. Why would it be that if someone understood the principles here, they wouldn't live them out? Because I see that a lot. Well, maybe, maybe I jump to a conclusion, maybe they don't understand the principle. Maybe that's part of it. Um, over in James, first chapter of James, Skipping way over. I think one of the reasons is because we can be very accustomed to hearing and not doing. We can say, yep, that sounds good, that preaches good, I agree with that principle, and then walk off and do something completely different than that, actually in our day-to-day -day walk, in our day-to-day -day life. James, first chapter. Let's go to the 22nd verse. And maybe a few after that. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. 
I'll just say, we're here, we're, we hear things from the Word. If there's something that I would want you to hear from this story in 1 Samuel 15, it's God takes obedience really seriously. We can't have a flippant attitude about it. We can't have a, yeah, once in a while, or I'm working my way up to it, or I'm easing my way into trying to be, especially when, when his word ha has given us very explicit direction about something. Does that make sense? hope I'm not, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm stepping on toes, but I guess if, if that's the case, oh well. I think for some, they, they, they never actually believed. It wasn't that they heard it and, and weren't able to put it into action. It's they never really believed it in the first place. It would be easy to say, well, you know, these, uh, come on, man. These stories from this long ago, they're not really relevant to the day we live in today. They're exactly relevant. They're exactly relevant. What Saul went through here is, uh, it, it has relevance today just like if it had happened yesterday. It's not, it's not some ancient fable. It's a story of something that really happened. It's a tragic story about a man's life who, who very much fell short of what God had planned for him and, uh, and suffered a great consequence for it. We're not even going to go to the end of his life today, but that was, a, that was especially tra tragic. To me, this, to this obedience topic segues into discipline because I think the two are exactly intertwined. That's what, it, that's what this story did for me as a young man, and especially as a, a young man, as a father, like a brand new father. Um, I really look back and I just thank the Lord that, that he showed us this thing at the time in our lives when he did, because I, I really feel like... Uh, he saved us a lot of trouble, <laughs> and at the end of the at the end of the day, if you say why is obedience so important, it's not because it's not because the Lord says, "Well, I'm the drill sergeant, and when I say jump, your job is to say how high." That's not it at all. Why did He want the Amalekites destroyed? Because He didn't want them to be a constant thorn in Israel's side. The same, reason, the same reason that we want to be able to instruct our kids in obedience because if our kids will obey us, we can save them so much trouble. At the, at the very basic level, we can say, stop, don't step off the sidewalk in front of a car. And if they will obey us, we can, we can literally spare their life. Uh, maybe at a, on a less dramatic scale, we can, pre, we can help them avoid an awful lot of heartache and misdirection if we, if we build into them the pattern the habit of obedience. That makes sense? God's motive in wanting us to be obedient isn't, isn't simply that 
it isn't simply that he wants to exercise his will, it's that he wants to protect us. He wants to guard over us. He wants to provide for us. He wants to be able to bless us. And he knows, better than we do, what things are going to be impediments to that. That's why, that's why when the Word gives us specific instructions on these things, ooh, we, need to, we need to pay particular attention and we need to be doers of it, not hearers only. I'm going to wrap up uh, right there. If there's a takeaway, it's this. Please... Please take a long, hard look and say, have I kept the king alive somewhere in my life? That thing that God said, no mas, utterly destroy it. Or have I kept something where I've said, well, that's so nice. God wouldn't really want me to, to get rid of that. All those cute sheep and oxen or whatever whatever it is. It'd probably be something analogous, not actual sheep and oxen. But is there anything in our life that we've that really we know we were told to get rid of that. But we've hung on to it and maybe even built an excuse in our mind. Oh yeah, we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. Or yeah. Or we blame someone else. That was the first thing Saul did. The people. It wasn't me. It was those those people you gave me. Lord, they're the ones that they're the ones that did that thing. Ask yourself, ask the, ask the Spirit of God to look into your heart and say, Lord, is there anything? Is there anything in here that you wanted me to utterly destroy that I've kept alive? And if there is, do business with God and take care of it, because those things are those things are absolute impediments. We'll drag them. We'll just drag them like a ball in a chain until they're severed away from us. Amen? Brother Donaldo, I am going to uh, turn over to you for communion, if you would, please.